Can you recall to mind the best farewell speech that you've ever heard? There have been many famous farewell speeches for us in history, but also in the Bible. Because they're nearly commonplace in the Bible for all Israel's leaders. Jacob in Genesis 47, where he says goodbye to his sons and gives them his final blessing. Joshua in Joshua 22 through 24, where he says goodbye to Israel. And we get one of the verses that we uh, have put at least on our refrigerator or bought a clock or a calendar, you know, that said, serve whoever you're gonna serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. David, in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, what do you think the most famous farewell speech is in all of scripture though? Moses, you know what it is? The entire book of Deuteronomy. So you talk to me about being long-winded. His farewell speech is what? 100, 150 chapters, you know, something like that. But it's his final words for Israel. Uh, what's beautiful about it is that it's speak, Moses speaking to the 12 tribes, him being their, uh, say, physical savior, the one that led them out of slavery from Egypt. And he is leading them into the promised land, the land that was promised their father Abraham. And Jesus, in his farewell speech, speaks to the 12 disciples that is going to lead all of their children into the promised land. So that's what's beautiful about this speech, is that it's, it has this air of salvation. It has this uh, nearly, I won't say desperation, but he knows that this is it. Again, remember, we began last week with him saying the hour has come. It's come in less than 20 hours, probably more like 14 or 15 he will be dying on the cross. He will be coming, he will be ac accomplishing what he came here to accomplish. So what would you say? What do you tell your 12 disciples, the ones that are going to carry the message in order for the world to be saved? What would you say? And so this is, I told you that uh, John 13 is the transition, if you will, from all public ministry to him spending these last few hours alone with his disciples. And there are only 11. I wish there were 12 for this, but there are only 11. And it picks up where we left off last week in chapter 13. It says, when he had gone out, this is speaking about Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. So everything up until that point, everything that we know about Jesus up until that point has, has glorified the Father. Now, I wanna tell you this, that one thing that I do believe he's referring to, I, I believe he's referring to his entire life up until this point, his whole life in ministry, but also remember, this is what we keep in mind, that this is the context to this speech, is that there are only 11 there. The 12th, who already had it in his heart to betray him, has already gone. And what did Jesus do for him before he left? He gave him communion. He washed his feet. He gave him bread. He gave him communion. And I would say that that one act more than all else may glorify God as much as anything else Jesus ever did. 
So my question as we, as we go on here is, does the church glorify God in this matter? We who claim to believe, we who came to believe because of these 11 guys' words, if you will. Because all of us are here, all of us are second generation because we believe the disciples' words when they told us that we could be saved. Do we treat, um, do we glorify God? Do we bring God glory in the way that Jesus brought God glory that night as for what he did for the disciples and what he did for Judas? So he begins when Judas leaves. And when he was gone, so this is all actually a therefore here. He says, if God has been glorified in him, now not speaking of Judas, but speaking of the son of man, if God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. A little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So this quote-unquote farewell speech, if you will, all is based and begins with and is talking about whose glory? God's glory. If God has been glorified in him, Jesus said, if God has been glorified in the Son of Man, in me, then God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. So Jesus, again, is commenting on this relationship that he has with the Father. If the Father's been glorified, then the Son has too, because the Son and the Father are what? Are one. So there's two themes to this. First is glory. It's mentioned five times in this speech, just five times. Love is the other theme. It's mentioned four times. So who gets the glory according to Jesus? In all the New Testament, uh, glory, the word glory or glorified or, or any of those uh, iterations of the word glory is used 61 times. That's, you know, when you get into double digits and into the 50s and 60s, that's, a, that's an important word for only a few books in the New Testament. It's used 61 times. All but six of them are about God. All but six of them are about the process of glorifying God, God getting the glory, God being glorified in and out and about. All but six. Of the six, three of those, one is the prostitute of Babylon glorifying itself, herself, in Revelation 18. Paul calling those who won't glorify him fools in Romans 1. And Jesus commanding us not to seek man's glory in Matthew 5. So all but those, all but those are about the glory of God. And even those three are still about the glory of God, but it's about men, uh, humans being glorified in contrast to the glorification of God. The glory of Jesus is coming. That's why he begins the way he does. The real glory of Jesus is coming. It's his death, it's his resurrection, it's his ascension. I want to look back at chapter 12, a narrative that we didn't cover last week, and we'll just read through it, uh, you know, these verses here real quick. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this reason that I have come to this hour. So his three and a half years of life and ministry and everything that he's done is all down to what? It's all down to this hour. He said, should I ask for, to, to, for God to keep me from this? No, he says. 
No, it's for this that I've come. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's only one or two times that I remember a voice coming out of heaven during Jesus' ministry. And what does he say? He already tells Jesus, I have glorified it. He assures Christ that up to this moment, everything that he's done has completely glorified his father. And then he says, which I believe in a moment of comfort, says, and I will glorify it again. What you're about to do, my son, will bring me glory. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not for mine. What's interesting is that the voice came for their sake, but they don't understand what he said. All they know is it came from where? And isn't that what Jesus has been trying to get across to these people? That he is the one, he is the bread that has come down from heaven, that he truly has come from the Father. It's one thing to believe that somebody is walking around claiming to be a Messiah. It's another thing to know that he came from above. And Jesus said that's where his glory lies, is that he came from above. It's not just believing in Jesus. It's believing in Jesus and the one who sent him or where he came from. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, he says. It will be driven out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So you see what he's saying about what the Father said, he will bring him glory, is that the ultimate glory being brought to God is when Jesus is lifted up, is when he's crucified. Because he's done it for everybody. The glory of Jesus revealing the true, loving character of God. And this is what this is about. Jesus says, this is why I came. I came to tell you these, uh, wait, wait till we get to chapter 17. It's, it, it's unbelievable. But one of the things that he tells these, these promised people, if you will, these chosen people, is that the Father himself loves you. It's, it's not just me. He said, it's the Father who loves you. The reason I was sent is because the Father loves you. Jesus knows this on-again, off-again relationship that Israel seems to have with God, the God of Sinai, the God of Moses. They've misunderstood him. They've misinterpreted him. They have not believed that he truly loves them. Jesus said, I'm living proof of that. You want proof that God loves you? Look at Jesus. Because he was sent from God for you, for me. So notice that there was glory in Jesus' life and ministry, but there is another glory coming when it comes to this true, loving character of God. Jesus has already taught them, greater love has no man than one who will what? Who will sacrifice himself, who will lay down his life for someone else, who will love their neighbor as their self. And always remember where we've been. When the word became flesh and lived among us, we've seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was what? Because he was before me. 
From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth, though, came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart and who has made him known. If your desire was to see God all your life, living at that time, Jesus said, I'm here, you've seen him. So the disciples' mission to the world then has nothing to do with their own glory. Whatever it is they attempt, no glory was supposed to be brought upon them. Their mission, what is their mission? What is every disciple's mission? Look at it this way. He said, I give you a what? A new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, agape. This is God's unconditional love. This is the supreme love uh, pronounced in Greek of the three words that we used. It's used 143 times in the New Testament. John uses it 37 times in his gospel. He uses it 28 more times in 1 John. John loves the word love. How are they to love? Not just love each other as they have up until this point, which the disciples, I'm not 100% sure they do love one another. Even up till this night, what have they been doing? They've been fighting. By the way, they've been fighting as to who gets more glory, right? So Jesus had to address where the glory goes first, and now he talks about what? Now he talks about love. You guys think that you're because you've been in my rabbinic school for three and a half years that you have brotherly love for each other. No, I don't want you to love the world that way. I want you to love the world as I have loved you. The disciples of the one who laid down his life for the world will be known as disciples of the one who did that when they begin to what? when they begin to love one another. So you have to wonder, because we've, we've looked around for years now. You know, it's been coming for years. And we wonder why the world has quit listening to the gospel, has quit listening to uh, the message, if you will. You know, we've been, we've been called to preach a specific message. And we know for a fact that every time we put on evangelistic series and everything else, we don't get anybody to listen anymore. Why? Maybe it's right here. This is why. See, the world has already loved the way the world loves, right? So when we want to uh, introduce them to real love, we have to, we have to give them something more than what they get every day. And what do they get every day? Even if they're loved, even in the most intimate places, even if they're loved, they're loved what? Conditionally, because that's who we are. We have a tendency to be able to love as long as everything's going okay. But what happens when betrayal happens? What happens when we fall? They have to transcend the way the world loves. Humanity simply does not love this way. They don't wake up in the morning wanting to be martyrs, longing to be martyrs. 
I may be selling you short, but I don't believe, I, let's just say I didn't. I didn't wake up on Sabbath morning, this morning, wondering what I could do to lay down my life for you. That was not the first thought in my head. By the way, Jesus does, though. That's his nature. It's Adam and Eve's nature before the fall. Before the fall, they woke up in the morning that way. What can I do for you? Humanity doesn't. We normally help when it's convenient. I'll confess to you now. I was late. I figured I was going to be here. Uh, have to walk in while Ed is doing announcements. And the first light that I came to was a stalled car. I went right by them. Of course I did. Why? Because I was late. And maybe I don't give you enough credit. If I showed up an hour late and I told you what I did, you'd probably be good with it, right? Well, not in my head, no. Conference is gonna get a phone call on Monday. People normally don't give when it hurts. People don't face ridicule and accusations without fighting back. We have glimpses, we do. There have been glimpses in human life of martyrs and people who love, not just willing to die for somebody, but people who are re really truly uh, willing to live for somebody. We have glimpses. Jesus said it was new. He said, I have a new commandment for you. Is it new? I told you John uses love uh, 28 times, uh, 27 times just in the, uh, the letter of 1 John. In this verse he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. It may not be new, but they're hearing it in a new way. You don't get much older than Leviticus 19, do you, Ed? Not when, we, not when it comes to commandments. So this isn't new, except the way or the context in which they're hearing it. Because this is the first time that they're hearing the words and they're having that life of the words staring right back at them. And as a matter of fact, in 14 or so hours, that word is gonna lay down his life for them. So Leviticus all of a sudden now comes to life, doesn't it? Don't, don't, don't do any of these things to a neighbor that the world is willing to do to a neighbor. Why? Because the neighbor did something to you first. Because we're all human. So this new power of the word has the cross as, at its center, has the cross at a, as, as its model. It doesn't change the old commandment. The cross brings home God's love to the followers of Jesus. It shows their love for, for one another will demonstrate God's love to the world. We're disciples of Christ. We believe that our mission is to bring the gospel to the world. Amen? This is how we do it. This is how we do it. And by the way, anything short of this just doesn't cut it. As a matter of fact, anything short of this, like as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, might even be dangerous. Because the church has tried for centuries to do it without love, right? To do it without remembering that God loves them. 
And what's the history of the church when it comes to begin to carry out its mission? Not too good, especially when we thought that picking up the sword was a good idea. When it came to sharing the gospel. So how do we get this way? How do we love this way? Jesus moves further into the next chapter of his farewell speech. In John 14, Jesus will make the statement easier on them that he is going away. He'll make it more positive. As a matter of fact, he told them, you know, you're going to have sorrow for a little while, but when you realize what's happening, you will have joy. You with me? So he said, I want to make this as easy on you as possible. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. A real quick aside for just a second, just a quick aside. That is the most definitive statement about the millennium in all of scripture. Not even revelation is that clear about the millennium and what we're going to be doing for at least a thousand years after Jesus comes. Not coming to be with you where you are, but taking you to be with me where I am. Not even revelation says it this plainly, if you will. Anyway, he's preparing places. It's interesting. Preparing places. He's not building you a mansion. Sorry to tell you. Now, the room that he's preparing may be mansion-like. I don't know. See, but mansions are standalone buildings. That's not enough for the Father. We're not gonna just check in with the Father every, every Sabbath. We're not gonna walk from our mansion in the country into the city and say hi to the Father. No, it's a room in his house. When you go to Capernaum today, they've excavated what they call Peter's house. They say this is Peter's house only because they want you to believe that it's Peter's house because for some reason, they think that when we do believe it's a certain place, we might spend more money there. It's probably not Peter's house, but it is an excellent example of a first century, what they call insula sacra, if you will. In the very middle, you can see it was the original house. Mom and dad, that's where they, that's where they lived. Son was born. As soon as the son was born, they begin to build another room. And when the son gets old enough and brings his wife home, they get another and they begin to build. And it all goes around like this. Mom and dad, stay. No more saying, I wish my kids would visit me. See, we think sometimes, you know, we're going to live in a standalone mansion out somewhere by ourselves. Jesus said, no, that's not why I did all this. I did this so you'd be with me. Walk with me, talk with me. There was no temple there. No intercession. It's you and me, he says, forever. So next he he gives them a riddle. I think it's very interesting the way that Jesus teaches what a a good rabbi would do is to get you to begin to ask questions. So he gives them a riddle. He says, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. 
He says, you know, and everybody had to, had to have said what? What do you think they said? In their heads, at least. They didn't say it out loud. At least John didn't record it. But I think John said it in his head. Wait, what? I do? I, I don't have a clue. And the reason we know that is because Thomas takes the bait. He, he says, I, I don't know about everybody else here, but I don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He says he doesn't know where he's going. That's beautiful. Jesus just goes ahead and answers. And this is the answer to a simple question. We don't know where you're going, and it might be some of the most profound words that ever came out of Jesus' mouth, some of the most comforting words that ever came out of his mouth. This was the answer to that question. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas said, I don't know the way. Yeah, you do. You can get to the Father through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So he said, you do know the way. How do they know the way? It's because he's sitting right in front of them. Here I am. Here he is. Philip misses the point. Okay, just misses the point. He fouls it off, if you will. He fouls Jesus' pitch off. And Philip then says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be what? We will be satisfied. Jesus tells them what they should have already known. By the way, the reason we know it is because we came from John 1, didn't we? John didn't want anybody to miss it in the second generation. He said because we knew it, he was sitting right in front of us, and we didn't know it. So what's the first thing John tells you when you open up his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So for you and me, we don't have to go through what the disciples went through, no acts of confusion, no places to go. We don't have to wrestle uh, with what they wrestled with. John said, I don't want you to have to go through what we went through. You want to see the Father? Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? To know Jesus is to know exactly who and what the Father is like. The Son is the express image of the Father. And in both words and works, the Father communicates through Jesus with us. He goes on. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. If you can't get your mind around that right now, he says, if you can't get it around that, then just believe in the works itself. The works will carry you for a little while. Remember we talked about that before. What were the miracles designed to do? The miracles were designed to show us that at least, if nothing else, Jesus had God's power for a few minutes to raise somebody from the dead, to heal a man born blind, to feed 5,000 with five loaves. You with me? He said, if you can't get your mind around the fact that I am God, that's okay. 
What other God would say, it's okay if you don't believe in me right now? Ah. No human God would do that. You tell Zeus you don't believe in him, and what are you going to get? A lightning bolt between the eyes. It's okay, he says. My favorite words from Jesus is, it's okay, man. It's okay. Just remember the works as you're on this journey to begin to believe. Just remember the works that they couldn't have come from anywhere else. I'm not a magician. Then he springs this on him. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because what? Because I'm going to the Father. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Greater works than these? You just told me to believe that you are God based on the works and you're telling me that I will do greater works than you? And we've struggled with for centuries as to what he meant by this. But I, I believe that the reason that he started the, uh, the farewell speech with love and glory, I think it makes it very, very simple as to what the greater works are, he says. How can it be that we would do greater things? He says this, he said, I'll do whatever you ask me in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will what? I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, a helper to be with you for how long? Forever, he said. And this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I'll not leave you orphaned. I am going away but I'm also coming to you. Got it? The Holy Spirit. Jesus' presence in the world. Up until now, the Holy Spirit has been manifested first and foremost in what? What's the very first thing that the Holy Spirit has been manifested or made known in this world? Creation. Creation. We tried to take creation apart In fact, it's crumbling right under our feet right now. But that's the first place. The other place is is when the Holy Spirit does find a dwelling place in within people. And and they begin to, uh, to begin to grow to be more like the one living in them. But the Holy Spirit... See, this means that way that if you tell someone who has the spirit that they'll have to be doing greater things than not restoring, giving sight, cleansing lepers, making paralytics walk, raising the dead. No, if you're filled with the spirit, that's not what you're looking to do. You're not looking to be uh, uh, competitive, if you will. And by the way, the gifts of the spirit are a whole lot more varied and abundant than by raising people from the dead, amen? Amen. There are lists and lists of gifts of the Spirit. So when the Spirit lives in us, we begin to look at what it means to do greater things than Him, okay, in another way. See, the earthly Jesus volunteered to handicap Himself with human limitations. Paul put it this way. He said, the creator of the universe 
grasp, did not grasp his divinity. Jesus did not uh, see his divinity as something he should hold on to. He surrenders it and then condescends, comes down to earth. He left a lot of his divinity behind. Why? Because that's what we required. We were scared of him when he had full divinity. We were hiding in the bush from him. He leaves it behind. So when Jesus spoke to the disciples, the Father could only be seen in one person. Who was it? Jesus. Up until that point, the Spirit could only be fully manifested or fully seen in one person. So now he returns to the Father, but he leaves the Spirit here. So that now the character of God could be manifested to who? To the whole world. He did it for that 12, those 12 guys, and then left his presence for the rest of us so that his presence with the Father can now be his presence on earth through who? You and me. That means wherever we are in Jesus' name, that's where God is. Either you're all shocked or you don't think that's good news. You see what he said? This is another way of looking at this. Don't worry if you can't raise the dead. Don't worry if you can't heal the blind. There are a whole lot more spiritual gifts out there. And by the way, when you're too tired, when you're too tired to be exercising your gift and you're too tired to love your neighbor as yourself, guess what? One other sign that you have the Holy Spirit is that you're merely breathing. He doesn't take it away just because you're tired. Remember what he said? It's okay. It's okay. See, according to verse 12, Jesus goes to the Father, and because he did that, millions of disciples are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 and 17 through prayer, Jesus extends his work on a magnitude that was not possible before when it was all manifested in one human body. He could, only, he, he could only minister to whoever was right in front of him, right? Now he can minister to the entire world. Why? Because you and I are in the entire world. So would this qualify as greater things than he? Sure it does. So the results. How to teach, how to reach the world for Jesus. What is the one way that will reach them? is simply to do what he told us to do, and that is we gotta begin to love each other as he loved us. See, the Great Commission says to go and to make disciples, to baptize. How is it that he made disciples? He did it first by what? By loving them. In fact, he's still trying to tell them about that love the night before he is crucified and has to go away. commands them to love each other. Not just love, mind you, but how. How he is loved, and that's very important. See, we express ourselves uh, in what we've experienced and what we were taught, what we think it is, whether it was or not. Can we grow up thinking that abusive control is love? Sure we can, unfortunately. Can we grow up thinking that conditional love is love? Of course we can. When all the world has to offer is that, that's what we believe love is. 
But remember Jesus' definition of love, of his showing it. It's all the U's. Unconditional, unstoppable, unlimited, and one S, sacrificial. There's nothing, nothing you can do right now, nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there isn't anything you can do to make him love you less. How many here as a parent can say that, that we can even treat our children that way? The word used also rings as their finite definition. Jesus said, with, my, with me living in you, you'll begin to change that definition. The definition will begin to change. It won't be based on reward and earned credit anymore. It'll be based on what I have already done for you and I just want you to walk with me. No matter what point of belief you are, no matter where you're at, no matter how angry, how tired, how resentful, just walk with me. It's okay. Someone who loves in spite of who they are. So remember two verses from this, from this farewell speech in, in 13, if you will. Remember these two verses. Before the festival of Passover of Jesus, uh, Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till what? He loved them till the end. And then in verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I've, whom I've chosen, but it is to fulfill the scripture. The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is able to love those who are still in the room, and he's able to love who, the one who left the room who is going actually to betray him for money and glory, by the way. Judas just didn't do it for money. He did it for glory. He thought if he could force Jesus' hand that he would never, ever, he would never allow himself to be taken captive. And if he's not gonna do that, then he's going to bring about the kingdom and we all know what the disciples get when he brings about the kingdom. 12 thrones just like his. Judas did it a little for money, but mostly he did it for glory. And the beautiful thing was, Jesus said, Judas, it's okay. Go do. Go do what you've set your heart to do. Meanwhile, I still love you. I washed your feet. I gave you my bread. And I do believe that if he had come back, he would have given him his forgiveness. This is love. It's never changed. In Numbers, we, we recite sometimes the priestly blessing, you know, the, the blessing that the priests were supposed to pronounce on the people, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to what? To shine upon you. The Lord make his face. Imagine how bright the Lord's face is, the Father's face is. How, how'd you like to have that face shining upon you? See, what happens is, is as soon as the Father's face shines upon you, then everything else inside of you is illuminated. So the priest knew, the priest knew that once the Father's face shines upon you, you're gonna see a whole bunch of stuff about ourselves that we don't like. So they end the, they end the blessing this way. May he look upon you, shine upon you, and give you peace anyway. 
The greatest sermon ever preached. What is the greatest sermon ever preached? Sermon on the Mount, right? Do we remember what happened in Matthew 4, though, before the Sermon on the Mount begins? Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Before he opened his words to preach a sermon, he did what? He lived the sermon. He spread God's love and healed all sickness, anybody who came to him. James tells us that too. James comes to a church that boasts that they have great faith, great faith, But James says, you know what? I got a problem with you boasting about your faith. You prefer the rich to the poor. You do nothing for anybody's hunger or clothing needs. And then tell them that God loves them. He said, what is that to them? Faith without works is what? Is dead. Works without love is dangerous. Bible study without works is dead. Bible study without love is even worse. We all remember the quote, page 143 from the Ministry of Healing. Christ's method alone will avail much when it comes to winning souls. He mingled with people as one who desired their good, met their needs, won their confidence. Then and only then did he say, follow me. What will love accomplish? What can it accomplish? It will accomplish what it has always accomplished. Our Bible study, our message, everything that comes after we've shown our love, that isn't what converts. Love isn't, our love for someone else isn't even what converts. But what love will do is come up against a hardened heart by the conditional love of the world or by the conflict of the world or by the abuse or by anything that anyone has experienced. Love will come up against that. It will soften the heart so then the spirit can do something with them. And then we leave it to God to do the converting. And even think that we did something when they come to Christ and we baptize them. We baptized. We're growing. Really? You with me? World is full of guilt. Guilt and shame. I told you last week, there's real sin out there. There's real sin in here, isn't there? And it's hardened us. It's hardened our hearts. I'll leave you with this about love and what it does for a hard heart and guilt. Now, I apologize to the elders. I used this as our devotional at our last meeting, but I can't let it go. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells these stories of hardened hearts and what love can do. He said, Guilt does its corrosive work even when consciously repressed. 
1993, a Ku Klux Klansman named Henry Alexander made a confession to his wife. In 1957, he and several other Klansmen had pulled a truck driver, a black truck driver from his cab, marched him to a deserted bridge high above a swift river and made him jump, screaming to his death. Alexander was charged with the crime in 1976. It took nearly 20 years to bring him to trial. Pled innocent and was acquitted by an all-white jury. For 36 years, he insisted on his innocence until the day in 1993 when he confessed the truth to his wife. I don't know even what God has planned for me, he said. I don't even know how to pray for myself, he told her. And a few days later, he died. Alexander's wife wrote a letter of apology to the man's widow, a letter subsequently printed in the New York Times. And it said this, Henry lived those years she had believed in her husband's protestations. She believed her husband's protestations of innocence. He showed no outward sign of remorse until the last days of his life, too late to attempt public restitution, yet he could not carry the terrible secret of guilt to his grave. After 36 years of fierce denial, he still needed the release only forgiveness could provide. In 1992, the grand dragon of the KKK, Larry Trapp of Lincoln, Nebraska, made national headlines when he renounced his hatred, tore down Nazi flags, and destroyed his many cartons of hate literature. Catherine Watterson recounts in her book, Not by the Sword, Trapp had been won over by the forgiving love of a Jewish cantor and his family. Though Trapp had sent them vile pamphlets mocking big-nosed Jews and denying the Holocaust, though he had threatened violence in phone calls made to their home, though he targeted their synagogue for bombing, the Cantor's family was consistently responding with compassion and concern. Trapp was diabetic since childhood. He was confined to a wheelchair, rapidly going blind. The Cantor's family invited Trapp into their home to care for him. They showed me such love that I couldn't help but love them back. He spent the last months of his life seeking forgiveness from Jewish groups, the NAACP, and many of the individuals he hated. World can't do that. Only love can. This is our mission. I'm not denying that the three angels' message is the message we're supposed to be giving to the world, but what is the three angels' message without love? As a matter of fact, I would go as far as to say that any message that's supposed to be given to the world would be love and love alone. And that doesn't take away anything from Revelation 14, does it? No. We can't make people listen. As a matter of fact, we can't make them love us back. See, but that's not why we love. We love people simply because Jesus said they were worth loving, no matter who they are. And who's living proof of that? You and me. I give you a new commandment today, we are reminded. And I thank God that he reminded his disciples of that. That you have love for one another. By this they will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, for each other. I love y'all. I miss you too at home. <laughs>